Our greatest desire is to see the miracle of the second birth take place in the lives of our children. And it's something we know that it's impossible from the Spirit's preparation and calling. But that desire still is good and right. And you will see that we have a responsibility to be an evangelist in general. We all know that from the Great Commission. But in specific, in particular, as a parent in God's means of passing on truth. And you know by your own salvation testimony what a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of an angry God, and you would not want that for your own children. 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle addressed this desire and the means of its fulfillment in his book, The Duties of Parents. And I'll be quoting Ryle throughout the morning, and we're actually going to end on this same quote, but here it is. He says, I know that you cannot convert your child. I know well that they who are born again are born not of the will of man, but of God. But I also know that God says expressly, train up a child in the way he should go, and that he never laid a command on man, which he did not give man the grace to perform. And I know too that our duty is to not to stand still in dispute, but to go forward and obey. It is just in the going forward that God will meet us. The path of obedience is the way in which he gives the blessing. We have only to do as the servants we were commanded at the marriage uh, feast in Cana, to fill the water pots with water, and we may safely leave it to the Lord to turn that water into wine. So maybe the first question to ask is, why must my child be saved? And before we get into the how of evangelizing your child, let's start with the fundamentals, the reason why that's needed. The fact is your child, and actually everyone, including ourselves, has a condition that needs to be changed. So what is wrong with my child? Well, God's view of man is that he is not good, that man is inherently evil. And the Bible gives clear evidence that everyone is a sinner, Romans 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And that sin affects the whole human being, including your child, their will, what they determine to do, their mind and understanding, their affections and emotions and their outward speech and behavior. This is what we call the heart. The scripture teaches that the heart is the control center for life. It's where your thoughts and intentions lay. It's where your allegiance is to either yourself or to God and where it's formed and where it's held. Mark 7, for from within, out of the heart, Jesus said, of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Genesis 8, 21, God declares that the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So what is the problem with your child? It's that no area or aspect of his nature is untouched by sin. We call that total depravity, even in children. What is total depravity? It's total depravity because there is no aspect of the human personality, character, mind, emotions, or will, that is their heart, that is free from the corruption of sin or immune to sin's enticements. Children don't come into the world seeking God and righteousness. They don't even have a neutral innocence. They come into the world seeking fulfillment of sin and sinful desires and selfish desires. Now, the fact that your child can t- sometimes speak and think and act in a way that, which is relatively good does not 
disprove his depravity. Since that quote-unquote good can never attain the entire lifelong righteousness and perfect holiness by which he alone can stand before God. An exemplification of good behavior doesn't change depravity. You can train a child to have good behavior, and it's right to do that. But he must know, and you must know, that that doesn't make him saved or more savable. All right? I know we want to see that our children are changing their outward behavior, and we want to take that as a sign of a true profession or confession and uh, a commitment to Christ, but that isn't necessarily so. Our children are not innocent when they come into the world, except in the sense that they are not morally aware or culpable, but they are naive and inexperienced. So if parents don't commit themselves to the task of raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, their children will eventually give full expression to their depravity. I'm going to give you a hint of where we're going today in saying that you and your parenting are tied to evangelizing your child. But some of you may think that applying strict behavioral standards combined with discipline is the answer, or the only answer. Now, it certainly is good, as I said, that our children have good manners, but teaching manners and applying punishment for wrongdoing is not the answer to depravity. The issue in parenting is primarily internal, dealing with your child's heart, not only his behavior. In other words, the heart of parenting is the heart of your children. One author said, morals are good, but not in and of themselves. We need to reach and pray for a morality that flows from a heart changed by God's grace. For many, the default is to slip into morality parenting rather than Christian parenting. The former is focused solely on outward behavior, the latter on inward change, which will manifest fruit in moral outward behavior, end quote. So, If you major on correcting external behavior or threatening discipline for misbehavior, you may be doing little more than raising hypocrites. That is, raising kids to respond in their heart, um, but on the outside, responding another way. So depravity is a heart problem. So what is the answer to the cure of your child's inborn depravity? Well, there is only one answer to cure your child's inborn depravity, and that is regeneration. Regeneration. It is to be born again. As our beginning quote from J.C. Ryle alluded to from the Gospel of John, to be born again. Regeneration, then, is like our first birth in that it's something that happens to you. You don't do anything to contribute to your spiritual birth. So what does regeneration do to a person? Why does a person need a regeneration? What does it do to your child if he is regenerated? Well, the new birth frees them from sin's bondage. It provides the Holy Spirit and his direction. The capacity to please God and obey him from the heart, not just externally, is made possible. So what should we do as parents? Now, what can we do and what should we do? Maybe two different things. What should we do as parents if salvation is by the will of God? Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him when they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good, good news of good things. You are that preacher. You are those good feet, those beautiful feet. 
as a Christian parent, and you are to preach and teach the whole counsel of God. Your top job as a parent, the chief role of your stewardship is to be an evangelist. God uses means. Therefore, you point your children to Christ alone who can save them from their sins. And it's by faith in his word and his work that a person is saved. A person's A person's heart is changed and exchanged in salvation by regeneration. This comes about in salvation, and regeneration follows the learning about God, fearing him and knowing him. God regenerates and empowers the heart to respond to Christ and declare him as Lord, to rightly fear him in adoration. The indwelt Holy Spirit, and you're going to hear a lot about the Holy Spirit this morning, drives us towards pleasing God. And this becomes the desire of of the believer. That is not naturally the desire of your child's heart. This is way beyond and completely different than behavior modification. By regeneration, we walk and think in the spirit and we can fulfill the law of God and we can please Jesus from the heart. And it's only in Christ that a child who has expressed conviction of sin may find hope, forgiveness, and salvation and a power to live in a manner which is pleasing to God. And only after regeneration does the indwelling spirit shape the child and manifest virtue and genuine fruit of the spirit. That fruit of the spirit only comes by knowing Christ. Therefore, since Christian parents are not just concerned with the child's behavior, but with his salvation and sanctification, what does the Bible tell us about the way to go about evangelizing our children? And we're going to talk about something called heart work, heart work. I first came upon this from our, our pastor. Um, as some of you know, uh, selders get together um, every morning and actually every evening before service. And we go into the prayer room there and we pray for you all for the service, what's going on in this campus and through this church. And um, every once in a while, we'll uh, engage John as well and, and he'll start talking. And it may be that setting or another setting, but there was a time a few years ago where uh, Pastor John started talking about what he called heart work. And uh, if you've ever been pa- around Pastor John, just in, a, in kind of a casual setting, I mean, the guy's brilliant, as you know, um, and he's always thinking, and he's thinking really deep and profound thoughts. So as he's starting to talk, everybody's starting to clue on, he's going on one of his riffs that's like really good. So everybody kind of got out their pen and a piece of paper and started writing this down. And it was really the talk of the campus uh, that week thereafter. So this is what he calls heart work. And what I mean by that, what he means by that is for a person to receive the gospel, their hearts must be prepared. We just talked about the nature of the heart. Man, you as parents cannot affect spiritual change. However, you can train the mind, that is to develop an apprehension in your child, meaning to grasp the meaning and the understanding of the gospel. So you can train the mind of your child and position their heart for a response. And I'm being careful with my wording here, but we can prepare and cultivate the heart for response by teaching five things, which we're going to call heart work. So we can train the mind, the position, the heart. And the first thing that you want to teach your children And we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the how-tos of that. But this is the big picture of what you're doing throughout the life of your child in in your home. Fear God. You want to challenge them with the judgment that is coming. Matthew 10, Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot 
kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus also said, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And in Proverbs 9, we read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of God is important for your child to understanding. Genuine wisdom starts with the fear of God. The fear of God is the one true foundation of the wisdom we much teach our children. And successful parenting literally begins with instilling in our children the proper fear of God. You know, Deuteronomy 31 well begins in verse 11. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns. Why? That they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. That was Israel's mission, to make sure people knew to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord, one author said, is the repentant faith of a sinner who has been brought low by God's holiness, bent the knee to his lordship, trusted in him alone for salvation on the basis of his work alone. The fear of the Lord works its way out from the heart in behavior, it doesn't work its way in by behavior, end quote. So developing a fear of God in our, in our children involves at least three things. So the first one is knowing God. Jesus said in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So in and, on your, in and about your parenting, you need to teach your children about God's attributes and his mighty deeds. His attributes can be taught to very young children, even though we may need to use some simple terminology. So we're just giving categories here. To teach the fear of God, you also need them to teach them to worship God. Hebrews 11, 13, 15, and 16 talks about all life being an opportunity for worship and to respond to the truth of God and how we live um, and who or what we worship. First Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, there can't be any sacred versus secular thinking. Either um, all of us are either worshiping God or our own pleasures, desires, and ways as idols. So ask the question, what's your child's attitude towards music, towards food, towards social media, games, TV, music, and other pleasures? Do they easily or reluctantly put them aside when someone needs help? Is there any habit or pursuit your child will not readily set aside for the needs of others? And even good hobbies can bring out fleshly lust and covetousness, which amounts to idolatry. Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Also teach your child what it means to Worship God in private. You know, can they read and find things in the Bible themselves? Have you trained them to just set aside a time, a devotional time for personal study of the Bible? What will you teach them about prayer and meditation? What verses and passages will they memorize so that they won't sin against God? Do they know what you're studying through and what your devotions are? You also want to teach them, when we're talking about worshiping God, about the essentials of 
corporate worship. And that can be accomplished through family worship times and should be modeled and, and uh, through active involvement in the local church, in Grace Church. You can teach your children a lot about you serving in this church. We obviously have that directive from Hebrews 10. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but in encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It would be good of you to raise your kids in the context of the local church, that your life should revolve around this church. Pleasing God is another way to teach them the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 5. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So this would include helping your children to make decisions biblically. All right. Using God's words as a roadmap, word as a roadmap and compass to discipline themselves. Does your child lean on their own understanding or in all his ways, including decisions, will he acknowledge the Lord, believing that God will make his path straight? When you teach your children to think in those terms, in the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord, you are evangelizing to your children. You're teaching them that they need to come to God, that God is the one they need to fear. If they're not thinking in alignment with God, then they are moving away from God. Your child should fear then violating God's standard and not merely yours. Why is that? Well, if your children grow up fearing only your displeasure, what are they going to do when you're not there? So you need to instill in them God's standard for behavior in their lives, and they should fear violating that. Therefore, put God's word and the teaching of God's word in front of them. So the first thing in heart work is to fear God. Secondly is humility over their weakness. Your children should know that they are lost and helpless apart from divine grace. They should know that they can't earn their way to heaven. Now, repent and believe can be confusing to children. And I know this because you'll see some of the kids in our student ministries um, thinking that repentance and belief are two separate things and they need to get their life right in one way or another before they can place their trust and faith in Christ. But we know that repentance accompanies belief. So you need to clear things up like that, that they don't have to stop sinning in order to believe. No, you turn to Christ in faith because you have nothing to offer. You can't turn on your own. From the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn over their weakness, their sinful state, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, You want to challenge their self-esteem. Your children are going to think that they are perfect and that they can't stop sinning. And as we'll see later, this challenge comes in the form of disciplining them for wrongdoing and disciplining them to a standard that they aren't capable of keeping. Romans 3 again, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Your child should understand they are part of that population. Penitence would be the third thing. They must develop at least an earthly sorrow over sin. They need to see that they hurt others when they sin, that they dishonor the Lord when they sin, and that repentance is not possible without God's work. So let's, let's think about this. 
Acts 3 says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So repentance is obviously a big deal in salvation. So how do we facilitate penitence? Well, there's some potholes to avoid. So when your child is caught doing something wrong, just saying, I'm sorry, isn't good enough. Sorry for what? That you got caught? Even if they say, I apology, apology alone doesn't equal repentance. We want them to own up to the responsibility and you'll find your child giving a defense. You don't want to allow them to give a defense. Instead, when you're confronting them, say, tell us what happened. All right. What did you do or didn't do that was wrong? And look for a response similar to, it was my fault because of whatever it is, that sinful thing that I, that I did. And ask, what should you have done and what should you do next time? All right, you want to get them to rehearse and to understand that which they did wrong. You're teaching the steps of being penitent. Now, getting at repentance, teaching the steps of repentance includes confessing, changing that behavior. And now, if they stole a toy from the brother and just giving it back, that is not changing the behavior. Um, righting the wrong. You want to get them to know, what do I need to do next time? Or what do I need to do now, excuse me, to make this right? Forsaking sin would also be something to teaching them what repentance looks like. Ultimately, though, God has to grant them repentance from the heart. All right? Confession and change behavior alone doesn't equal repentance. But teaching them right and wrong and the perils of doing wrong and the implications of doing wrong to their soul and what they do to others is important for positioning the heart to accept God and to repent from the heart, from a changed heart. The next would be facts about the gospel. We obviously want to teach them the facts about the gospel. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's a lot in those two verses. When you call on Jesus as Lord, you understand that you need to submit yourself to Christ. When you ask for Jesus, you're asking for a Savior. When you're confessing with your mouth those things, you're realizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Ryle says, kind of a long quote here, worth reading though, but if you love your children, if you love your children, let simply, let the simple Bible be everything in the training of their souls and let all of their books go down and take second place. Care not so much for their being mighty in the catechism as for their being mighty in the scriptures. This is the training, believe me, that God will honor. The psalmist says of him, thou hast magnified thy word above all Thy name, that's from Psalm 138 too. And I think that he gives an especial blessing to all who try to magnify it among men. See that your children read the 
read the Bible reverently. Train them to look on it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, written by the Holy Ghost himself, all true, all profitable, and able to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. See that they read it regularly. Train them to regard it as their soul's daily food, as an essential thing to their soul's daily health. I know well you cannot make this anything more than a form, but there is no telling the amount of sin which is which a merely which a which a mere for may indirectly restrain. See that they read it all. You need not shrink from bringing any doctrine before them, and that's true. Your children can understand some amazing things. He goes on. You need not fancy that the leading doctrines of Christianity are things which children cannot understand. Children understand far more of the Bible than we are apt to suppose, end quote. It's important that they know this book and that you read to them and they understand it and you have every day to do that. Now, specifically, but only in a summary form, um, let's go through what these facts of the gospel are. Now, the details of this are in chapter three of uh, Pastor John's book, Successful Christian Parenting. But we want to teach them about God's holiness, the law of God, and God's wrath against sin. Now, when we go through these, this this isn't to imply that you sit, go home from now, uh, from today, sit your child down, and you're just going to go through all of these steps. All right, this is just a list as you go through your life. You're going to want to understand their devotions as you, as you uh, confront them on their sin, as they ask questions, as you ask questions. These are the things that someone needs to comprehend and their heart needs to understand and be influenced by when somebody accepts the gospel, all right? When somebody accepts salvation from Christ, they have to be able to know these things. Obviously, we want to show them their sin, good and evil, sin and punishment. And you'll do that when you show them the standard that they fail to accomplish. Instruct them about Christ, who is God incarnate, what he did and accomplished on the cross. Show them their need for a savior, the idea of atonement, that Christ paid their sins for them, and the gospel of divine grace. And you can teach those things. Obviously, sin and punishment will be exemplified in your correction of them. You may give them grace at times. You can explain then what divine grace is. Tell them what God demands of sinners. That is repentance and faith. And advise them to count the cost thoughtfully. And in this, and we'll go over this as well, urge them to trust Christ as the only one who can save them and submit to the lordship of Christ. And then fifthly, when we look at heart work, we want to look at appreciation for Christ. You are to model your own personal adoration and affection for the Lord. And your children should see in you really the following verses that I will read. This should, this should describe you and your relationship with Christ. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who knows the Father loves whoever has been born of him. 
By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So the point being, you can model your love and affection to God by showing and modeling your commitment and your obedience to God and his word. So all these five provide a way for our children, or really anyone, to reasonably respond to the gospel. So when our children prayerfully do make that commitment, we will know that they have a good apprehension of what they're placing their faith in. And we're to do this really at every opportunity we have in some fashion or another. All right, so we found out what's wrong with our children, what they need, how their heart needs to be positioned. So the next question is, how do you evangelize and how do you actually do heart work? Now, this isn't going to be like an evangelism class where you might take here at Grace Church, but this is really for you as a parent. And we've established the fact that the parent is to be an evangelist. This is a crucial role. As J.C. Ryle puts it, as we train our children that we should, he says, train with this thought continually before our eyes that the soul of your child is the first thing to be considered. All right, in all of your parenting, the soul of your child is the first thing to be considered. What does that mean? Well, raising children involves a lot of your time, a lot of your energy. There's a lot of activities, a lot of things to keep in motion, put in motion, etc. And those things are all needed and they're good. But remember, God has positioned you, positioned the children, your children in your home for you to pass on the truths of Scripture to them. He has placed their soul in your home for you to care for and for you to nurture. That's the big thing. God's design for passing faith, righteousness, and truth from one generation to the next is through the family. We are to make disciples in our own families. You have a ministry in the home and you have the greatest opportunity to present Jesus as their savior than anyone else. You have the best years of your child's life to present and to live out the gospel. And your children will observe you to see if you live out what you believe. Spurgeon said, mothers and fathers are the most natural agents for God to use in salvation of their children. The point being, parents need to teach their children. But of course, you want to know how. Well, the first thing is by life's example. It's by life's example. That fifth point of heart work that you um, need to live out your love and devotion to Christ really is the place where we find this way to evangelize your, your child, right? That you effectively begin to evangelize your child through your personal love and obedience of God. Some hard questions to ask yourself. What kind of steward of the truth are you? Have you been an effective discipler to your children? Is your faith real and sincere or fake and hypocritical? Your children will know and it will affect them one way or another. And your impact them is tremendous. It really is a life on a life for a lifetime. Now, remember, parenting begins with your own relationship as a child of God. You know well Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7. But remember, the focus in that, in that passage begins with your heart. It says, these words shall be in your heart before you pass them on to your children. Our desire as parents extends beyond external 
obedience. Again, our target is what? It's the heart. But parents whose own hearts are cold and devoid of the word of God cannot properly shepherd their own child's hearts. All right? We're going to get in your kitchen this morning. Spurgeon said, train up a child in the way he should go, but be sure to go that way yourself. A couple hundred years before Spurgeon, Archbishop Tillotson said, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning them with the head to show them the way to heaven while take them by the hand and lead them the way to hell. End quote. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling indeed. Our children will follow our example. So faithful parents will provide a good life's example flowing from their own spirit-filled hearts. So you parents, you must understand that you are models for your children to follow. Philippians 4.9, Paul said, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is a powerful, practical method of teaching. We know that more is caught than taught. They're going to look at our lives to see if we match what we say. Doctrine sets the nail, but example drives it home. So you are going to teach your children all the facts of the gospel and everything they need to know, but your life is going to drive it home. Needless to say, but the greatest message you'll ever preach is your life. And if you ever talk to any of Pastor John's children, that's exactly what they'll say. They heard every message he said, but his life's example was the greatest message he ever preached. So faithful parenting is our goal, but we need to be faithful to train and instruct our children on what it means to know and love Christ and to be obedient to God's word. Again, remember that you're no better a parent than you are a spouse, than you yourself are a child of God. All your training and instruction to your children will accomplish little towards the goal if you yourself don't live up to the standards that you require of your own children. Integrity is a big deal. If you don't adhere to the same standard you want for your children, they will think those standards as dishonest. And children pick up on hypocrisy easily. You need to live the truth that you teach. Paul and Timothy gave us an example of being an example and had a positive effect on their flock. They said, you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhort each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom of God. So Paul and Timothy were teaching and preaching the gospel, but they were also providing an example, and they held it up as an example of what they taught. Ryle again says, your children will never believe you are in earnest and really wish them to obey so long as your actions contradict your counsel. What he meant by that is you'll have an ineffective influence because of the insincerity of your life and your lack of godly example. You, I should say you lack a you lack a godly example if you lack the fruit of a transformed life. Ryle goes on to say, we know little of the force and power of example. No one of us can live to himself in this world. We are always influenced. We are always influencing those around us in one way or another, either for good or for either, either for God or for sin. 
They see our ways. They mark our conduct. They observe our behavior. And what they see us practice, that they may fairly suppose we think right. Right? We may not say do as I say, but they're doing what you say. And never, I believe, does example tell so powerfully as it does in the case of parents and children. Fathers and mothers, do not forget that children learn more by the eye than they do by the ear. What they see has a much stronger effect on their minds than what they are told. Take care then what you do before your child. It's a true proverb. He who sins before a child sins double. And then he gives some examples of what we must do. Be an example of reverence for the word of God. Be an example in words, in temper, in diligence, in temperance, in faith, in charity, in kindness, in humility. Think not your children will practice what they do not see you do. You are their model picture and they will copy what you are. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but scary thought. Yeah. Children are very quick to observe, very quick in seeing through some kind of hypocrisy. The parent who tries to train without setting a good example is building with one hand and pulling down with another. End quote there. So we evangelize by life's example and secondly, by your parenting. Ephesians 6.4 calls us to discipline and disciple our children, to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of Lord, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's the difference between discipline and discipleship? How do the two figure into our role as parents and evangelists? Well, during childhood, much emphasis must be put on God's commandments and heeding your parental authority and your instruction and your obedience that you demand. This is the discipline part of parenting. It's the training part. It's the rules, the guidelines, the restrictions, the rewards, the correction, the structure. Instruction or admonition is the discipleship part. It's the putting into the mind part that you can reason with your child. That's verbal admonition, encouragement, advice, warning when we instruct our children about the character and deeds of God and what he requires of them. Christians are to be obedient to the Lord's command to make disciples. And this must begin in the home. Parents are to faithfully deliver and model God's truth in their children with the view of making disciples. You want to progress from discipline to discipleship. And in that that whole uh, process, that whole progression, you are evangelizing all the way through. And we'll see how that works coming up here. God has solemnly charged parents with the duty of raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It is not your prerogative to delegate that duty to others. You must make sure that you are the greatest influence in your child's life. I'm a children's worker, and obviously we love all of your children to be in our ministry, in the student ministries, but your Sunday school, your child's Sunday school leader should not be the one only solely or being the most influential person in your child's spiritual life. That's your role. So what exactly does your training, instruction, and chastening do to prepare your child's heart? Well, a good way to look at that is to look at the law of God and how it is used in conversion. So what does the law of God do? Well, the law, that is the divine standard of right and wrong, 
magnifies sin. And you as the parent, your parents' concern, concern should be to help your child understand that his sin through exposure to God's law and how it reveals a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17.9. Who can know it? No one can, but God does and it can be changed. So what is the law? What is the law? Well, in your home, it's your rules, which should be shaped by biblical principles and includes also your own family's preferences. Now, holding your children to adhere to the law, the law in your house, and disciplining them for disobedience is not only for the purpose of shaping their behavior, which it will, it is also a means by which parents point the children to his need for Christ. How's that so? Well, when your child fails to live up, live up to the standards which they are taught, it is an opportunity to explain to them their need for a savior. The law is thus like a mirror. It shows an individual the dirt on their face, but it has limitation because it can't wash it off. The grace of God is the sinner's only hope. So there's a lot of reasons why we discipline our children, why we hold them to a standard, but the main reason is to show them their sin. So you should look for those opportunities and you should look for and be grateful for the child that freely expresses their sin and freely admits to their mistakes because they're really wearing their heart on their sleeve and you can show them where their heart is at. What does this tripping up of the law do? The law is that is your set of rules is helpful because it exposes your child's inability to keep the standard and his need for a savior. Some of your limits in your home are just house rules, right? Who gets to take out the trash, what time they're supposed to get up in the morning, but some of your house rules will be directly from God's word, such as lying. So just as the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ, so God uses the standards you parents set at home to reveal the child's sin and to draw them to Christ. Romans 5.20, now the law came to increase the trespass, to expose the trespass so that sinners would trip up on their own sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded more. And the gospel comes in to relieve us of the guilt of that breaking of the law. So we see parental discipline and in teaching is not merely for the purpose of conforming a child's behavior to certain external standards. There's a much bigger reality going on. In contrast, parents should be concerned if their children are content with just knowing they're obedient. All right? They can fake you out and they can fake themselves out. Your rules, your correction, and your teaching do help a child behave properly, but they are designed to serve a much grander purpose. And just as the Old Testament law was meant to be a tutor to lead people to recognize their need for a savior, so is every aspect of our parenting. That's the bigger picture, that your parenting is there as God's means of evangelizing, and you need to be faithful to that. Your role, your parental role as evangelist then is your most important role. But evangelizing your children means more than explaining the facts of the gospel, even though that's important at a particular important time. Since your child cannot measure up to what is required of him, no matter what levels of outward conformity he attains, you have some very crucial opportunities to evangelize your children when they fail in action and attitude. Even if they are obedient on the outside, there's still an issue of their heart motivation. Why are they being obedient? What are they thinking? 
What are they wanting when they're told to obey? Selfishness and pride can be very subtle. And any motive that's that less than honoring God is unacceptable. So yes, you already train your children to live wisely. Yes, your efforts, efforts as parents can help him develop into a responsible adult and a tremendous privilege uh, you have as a parent. However, is being used by God to drive home to your children an awareness of their depravity and need for forgiveness. So never forget the vertical implications of your parenting. I'm going to wet my whistle. All right. In a sentence, you are to use your child's inability to live a life of perfect heart obedience to explain his need for a savior and his need for divine grace and power to live a holy life. At the same time, you are to be both an antagonist of your child's sin and an advocate of the gospel that can save his soul. That happens when you confront your children over sin. Sit them down, quiet place, away from others, and you antagonize them. That means you rehearse with them their sin. You let them know that they are a sinner. But at the same time, you look at that as an opportunity to show them, you know what, you did this yesterday and the day before. You really can't change your behavior, can you? You're not changing your heart. And you are an advocate of the gospel that Christ died so that your heart can change by faith in him. A child's failure and his accompanying conviction of sin and guilt are those opportunities for teaching and counseling. And these events will allow you to stress their hopeless condition and their need for salvation and the strength that comes through Christ alone. Learning obedience, demanding obedience is really the best way for your child to receive Christ. That's how you evangelize. Through such teaching and training, they will learn disciplined conduct, yes, but also be frustrated by the laws of God. They will learn what sin is, transgression against the law, not just hurting the little brother, Billy. They must first see themselves as a sinner before they can call on Jesus for salvation. That's huge. One good friend of mine said, I had no reason to call to Christ until I realized I was a sinner. That's true of us all, whether we express that or not. They must first see themselves as a sinner. Spurgeon said, begin early to teach for our children begin early to sin. All right, so what does this look like? Well, show them why it's so hard to do in meeting your standard and always being right. And what makes it hard to give up their rights, their depravity, that everything they do and say is somehow stained by their selfish sin. They need to see that their only hope is forgiveness from Christ. And your focus should be on their hearts, meaning their thoughts. What are they thinking? And you should ask your child when they do sin, when they do break the standard of your house, what were you thinking? By their answers, you can see what their intentions were, what their motives were. So focus, focus on the outward exclusively is really going to hinder in getting them to acknowledge their sin and their need for a savior. They may think they're good on the outside, when the end they are within, they are not. And to help your child understand the cause and effect of the wrong, ask them, what could you have done to avoid the problem? What would have been the result if you were obedient? In other words, you want to force them to rehearse the benefits and curses and the results of their choices. 
And remember, if they say, I don't know, that's not a good enough answer. They can go to the room, they can figure out what an answer is. All right? So, that's how we evangelize. You thought you were going to get five steps to saving my children today, right? It's by your life's example, and it's by your parenting and being faithful to that. A couple more topics to go with this. Professions of faith. Professions of faith. How do we respond when our, ch- when our child makes a profession of faith? Well, first of all, you need to understand your child's comprehension. Don't assume that your child's first profession of faith is real. Real faith involves understanding and confirming these, uh, those essential concepts we listed under heart work. These concepts may be beyond the comprehension of children at certain ages. And the sole object of saving faith is Jesus Christ and how he is presented in the gospel. Our children need to be old enough to understand these concepts that are essential and objective before they can confirm them. Remember, these truths are only comprehended. That means grasped with the mind, with the significance and the meanings of those truths. And they must be understood by a child and adult alike through the Holy Spirit's work in illuminating the work. So the Holy Spirit's going to be big on this section here. The gospel is supernatural truth, and it takes regeneration to understand it. It is the Spirit of God that gives light, all right? And if the Spirit of God doesn't give light, then the darkened mind will never be able to understand what is meant by the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. That means comprehend with a, a true significance because they are spiritually discerned. The believer's mind is dominated by the Holy Spirit. The unredeemed is dominated by sin. A sinful person has a bent towards the flesh. You can't educate them out of it, and the love of the Father is not in them. They are completely corrupt. Again, it's those that God regenerates that have the mind of the Spirit. And understanding these gospel concepts is a high bar to meet and is typically reached with a certain age that responds to a certain level of comprehension. So we see that childhood is a time of cultivation, of preparation, of immaturity, and there's not much spiritual fruit bearing. They're not complete. And you won't see with finality where a child is headed until his teen years. However, there can be early signs of either a foundation of a wicked and unrepentant life, or hopefully that he is seeking to live in a godly way. And choices of right and wrong come with maturity, and maturity is necessary to make right decisions. In fact, moral awareness and culpability is where there is an understanding of sin and corruption in your child, so that sins are deliberate. It's when the distinction between good and evil can be grasped. Well, the question might be, how young then can someone be saved? Well, children may or may not be able to express their views about spiritual truth or conversion and express faith. However, we do believe, I do believe, that a child can come to faith in Christ and discussion of faith is important. Raise the hands. How many of you uh, truly, sincerely believed you were saved at a very young age? It's like under 10 years old, right? There's enough hands here. And we believe that. I believe that. 
But often a child is unable to put his thoughts into words. He can't say a meaningful expression of what he believes. Now, that doesn't disprove that he's actually saved. And when they do express that, when they do express that childlike faith, we want to be kind. We want to be enthusiastic about whatever they have learned and whatever they believe. And we do have examples from the Bible of young children being truly saved. You you have Samuel. Now, the boy, Samuel, continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And we know from 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, that King Josiah instigated a spiritual revival as a teenager, and that didn't happen overnight. So the point of our parenting as an evangel is not to elicit any more response from our children that he is able and comfortable saying. In other words, we don't want to sit our children down and lead them through the quote-unquote sinner's prayer. You don't want to say, repeat after me, and if they do that, that they think that they are saved. And more importantly, that you don't think that they are saved. What about baptism? What about baptism? What do we do? Well, it's a different discussion if we're talking about what we require in terms of a clear expression of faith suitable to baptism. In other words, we can, we can uh, be enthusiastic and encourage our children to c- continue to believe what they may express in a childlike faith, but it's another thing of what we require them to express in baptism. Now, there's several views on this. There's the any age view, meaning that there are some churches that no matter what the age of the child, if they come and they uh, give evidence of true conversion, then they'll baptize them, irrespective of age. Now, if you really dig into people that believe that, they set a really high bar, all right? And so they have a really good doctrinal view of that, but they do say any age. That they, um, there are those that take Another position that called uh, the grown-up view, which means they need to be completely away from their parents' authority and really to be on their own before you can see their life played out and see if their expression of faith and their commitment to Christ is true and it's validated by their life. And then thirdly, there's the in-between view, and that's the view that Grace Church takes. We wait in prudence until children can have a meaningful expression of faith. We don't pressure children to make a profession of faith, nor do we make them anxious about making a public profession of faith. And we don't want to provide false assurance as well. When you get into that baptismal here at Grace Church and you've got a thousand people looking at you on a Sunday night, that's pretty assuring, all right? You get out of the water and everybody claps. That's a pretty good thing of assurance. We don't want that to be the point of assurance, Therefore, we should not be in a hurry to baptize children either. Now, it's our general practice to wait until a professing child has reached the age of 12. That's just what the elders have decided here at Grace Church. Why is that? Well, because baptism is seen as something clear and final. And our primary concern is that when a younger child is baptized, he tends to look to that experience as proof that he was saved. Baptism is a very reassuring event and act. Therefore, in the case of an unregenerate child who's maybe faking himself out and faking his parents out and others, which is not uncommon in the church at large, baptism actually does those children a disservice. So it's better to wait, we believe, until the reality to which baptism testifies can more easily be discerned. But what remains very much true also as we present the gospel to children is that we must earnestly urge them to come to Christ. So some of you may have thought that I didn't think 
children could be saved or worth bother evangelizing to. But since we know they can, we must earnestly urge them to come to Christ. Though we evangelize in a way so as not to coax a shallow or spurious profession of faith, there is an urgency inherent in the gospel message itself. And it is right to impress that urgency on a child's heart, your child's heart. 1 Corinthians 5.11, therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. 1 Corinthians uh, 5, later on in that passage, 18 through 20, God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we as ambassadors... and Consider you parents yourself as ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We employ you, employ you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All right? You are ambassadors for Christ, appealing, employing your children to be reconciled to God. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So we do preach the one and only gospel to children and part and parcel of the gospel is an urgent call to repent of sins and believe in Jesus. And your children should hear you say that to them. In our understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation, and not knowing who or when God will save, we spread the seed of the gospel to all. So the question is not one of the manifestations of faith, and we would argue that a child should have the same evidence of true conversion as with an adult, but on a less mature and articulate way. There must be some awareness, though, of forgiveness of sin, God's grace, genuine repentance and becoming a servant of righteousness that flows freely and unprompted from their lips to show true conversion. And I agree, that's going to be difficult to ascertain. But in the meantime, if a child, your child, expresses faith in Christ, we encourage them and we'll also challenge them. That faith may be the seed from which mature faith will later emerge. So, have a conversation with your child if they do something wrong. After they said they believe themselves to be a Christian, you say, well, you know, um, this is how a Christian would have behaved in that circumstance. Or when this happens to you as a Christian, you might want to remember that this is what the Bible says. So you're not really necessarily saying, yes, I believe you're a Christian, but I'm saying more without saying exactly, if you are calling yourselves to be a, a Christian, then this is how Christ would want you to believe. And so you want to encourage that way of thinking that they're expressing. So the heart of the matter of parenting, as I said, is the heart of your child. And regeneration is the Holy Spirit's work. Genuine faith is prompted by God's work in the child's heart. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. As it is written in the prophets, and they will be all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So true assurance is the Holy Spirit's work, and it's his task, not you as parents, to offer assurance. So don't get in your child's Bible, write their name, 
and put a date down and say, you're saved. So they can point back, yeah, my mom told me I was saved on this date. Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How does the Spirit do that? By the fruit of the Spirit. And that will come with time. And likely your child will struggle with assurance. One of our children, when they, um, by God's grace, placed their faith in Christ, very early on, they came into a room and said, I don't feel any different. You know, like something was supposed to come down from sparkles from the sky or they were supposed to start glowing or something. They, they, didn't, they didn't see what was happening. Well, genuine faith always produces the fruit of authentic obedience. And as Pastor John has said, time and truth go hand in hand. So you just want to explain to your children, give it time. Let time give opportunity of a true, sincere profession of faith. And specifically, assurance of salvation comes as the Holy Spirit illumines the child's mind. 1 John 5.13, Jesus said, these things I, excuse me, John said, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 10 excuse me, 2, 10 through 14 says, for to us, God revealed through the spirit, revealed them through the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the spirit of man, which is in him. Even so the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, as we said before, because they are a foolishness to him, and he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Now, as I said, as we started, you're in here because you have a general concern <clears throat> for your child. And I just want to make sure that your heart is set straight. Not all the children represented by you adults in this room are going to be saved. We just know that. Your heart's desires for that. But I also want you to not parent in fear, not live in fear about what to do if your child doesn't get saved, or worse, thinking that you have to do something. It's very important to note that we shouldn't parent out of fear. Fear that it's you that will be blamed if your child doesn't repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Fear that you haven't done enough in the way of setting rules or putting them in the right environment, making sure they have the right friends, go to Sunday school every Sunday, do every activity in student ministries, or correcting them every time. Now, we're right to be concerned about our child's salvation, but sometimes that concern works itself out in trying to change our child externally in the hopes it will change their hearts unto belief. And as we said, correction is useful and it is to be used, but we're to do so to use our child's inability to follow rules and a life perfect of obedience to explain their need for a savior and their need for divine grace and the power to believe and live a holy life. We are to set our standards and show them their sin. 
but also to be an advocate of the gospel as a way of forgiveness. But note, if your child doesn't believe in Jesus, it's not because of what you did or didn't do. Moreover, if your child does believe, it is equally not because of what you did. True, biblical parenting is the normal means used by the Spirit of God in our children's conversion and sanctification, and God uses means in your parenting. However, in the end, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is a gift. Technically, technically, we have nothing to do with our child's salvation. However, God uses us as we are to be faithful instruments unto them by our example and by our parenting. We can't regenerate them. Genuine faith is something only divine grace can prompt. God works sovereignly in your child's heart to draw them unto himself. Their salvation is ultimately a matter that's between them and God. Therefore, don't parent out of fear. Rather, parent out of and rely on God's grace. God is the one who saves for his purpose, for his glory, and nothing you do or don't do can change his sovereign plan of salvation. Trust in him alone and not for your efforts. Rest and find comfort in that fact. Trusting God provides the hope in the light of the fact that we may fail sometimes as parents. We don't always make the best decision in every situation. However, we rest in the fact that God will, God's will is not thwarted by our actions or inactions. And God can do anything and no one can thwart his will. So the true measure of success for Christian parents is the parent's own character. And to the degree that you have followed God's design for parenting, you have succeeded as parents before God and rest in that fact. God's only requirement of us as parents is our faithfulness. It's required of all servants to be found faithful, the Bible says. And that fits with the goal of parenting, of being a faithful instrument unto God and raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And once we do that, we leave and trust the results to him. Scripture is sufficient to guide you. And God will use his word to guide us one way or another if we are seeking him first. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, your parenting included, will be added unto you. And James 1.5 talks to us about if we lack wisdom, we should ask and it will be given in your parenting. There are some limitations, parents' limitations, and just repeat some things here just to drive this point home, because we hear this a lot in leadership here at Grace, especially when your child is getting into his teen years, and after that, that you begin really to fear for your child and fear and worry about what you did or didn't do. You cannot change your child's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can, and he uses the word of God in accordance with the perfect will of God. God gives people a heart to know him. And biblical parenting understands the limitations of parental influence, even in your role as an evangelist. Parents cannot control the results of their parenting effort. God does. The important heart level results. Philippians 1.6 states that God will complete the work he begins. That is salvation. He completes that work. Galatians 5, the Spirit um, brings fruit. Hebrews 4.12 declares that God's word is quick and powerful and, per- and pierces the soul. <clears throat> none of this, none of the stated in those three verses is brought about by parenting itself. Our responsibility is to be faithful to do what we know is right with the right motives. And keep in mind our goal 
My parenting influence stops with my faithfulness. You can't change your child's heart. Only the Holy Spirit can. And he uses the word of God in accordance with the perfect will of God. Jeremiah 24, 7. God gives people a heart to know him. We know that by that verse. And Romans 10 talks about faith coming by hearing the word of God. You need to live the word and to teach the word. That's where your faithfulness stops. Ultimately, as I said, a child is accountable to God and each person must give an account for their own lives someday. And children will not be able to blame their sin on the mistakes of their parents. You got that? Both will give an account for themselves, for their own actions. You for your faithfulness in your parenting and them for their decision towards not choosing Christ. Parents are to be found faithful stewards in the raising of the children, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I have a couple quotes here that I think say this really well. You cannot repair your child yourself, but you can take him or her to the Savior for rescue. This is liberating in one sense, but doesn't remove all responsibility from parents. The truth simply changes the responsibility. This truth simply changes the responsibility of the parent and realigns it with reality. You cannot save your child, but because Jesus can, your job is to constantly take your child to Jesus in prayer, through teaching, and by example. By your example, your teaching, and by prayer. Another great one. We can't, quote-unquote, force our children to be faithful, less sinful, or more righteous. That isn't our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be faithful in our own charge as parents. In that regard, I can surely hinder or help their sensitivity to Christ. Growth and sanctification, understanding of grace, and maturing in character, but I cannot guarantee it, secure it, or determine it. Let's be faithful in what we are responsible for and spend less energy to control that which we don't have responsibility for. Hopefully that's encouraging to you. Now, a lot of responsibility though on you, but you're not alone. You're not alone. The church has a role. And that means you in this room have a role to encourage each other. There's spiritual growth that happens in the context of the local church. You will grow as parents by your parenting, but also through the encouragement and the ministry of others. Ephesians 4.12, we are taught everything we're taught by those of us above us in the church for the equipping of us, the saints, for the work of service to the building up the body of Christ. So if you feel inadequate, is your job as a parent, your top job as an evangelist, you have this church to help you, to build you up. And there are people in here that are gifted to do that. First Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And one of the ways that works itself out is through children's and, and student ministries. We're here to help you. Um, we have a biblical view of children. We do understand that God's special love is there for children. He has a high regard for children. He considers all infants to be his. God loves his innocent little ones. Um, and we do recognize the children's spiritual potential. We do believe have a great biblical view of children. And we're here to support you. Support you. We're here to surround your children and you as parents with godly examples we want to reinforce what's happening in your home. Um, we want to provide instruction like this, our parenting class, marriage classes. Um, 
all of our ministries that happens here on Sunday, midweeks, at camps, etc., all are to cultivate an environment that is conducive to teaching the gospel. We want your kids to love Grace Church. We want your kids to love to come to VBS, to go to Camp Regen, to go to junior high camp, <clears throat> all the activities. That's all for not just to have fun. Your kids have fun, but we want them to see church as a joyous place to come, to see God's people as joyful people. So we want to cultivate that. We want it to be kid appropriate. We also want it to be anti-hypocritical as well. And of course, you rely on us and we commit to teaching the word of God, getting the gospel right, getting the character of God right. I wouldn't want you to teach morality, parenting at home, and we don't teach morality here at Grace Church. We teach God and we focus on the heart, just like you're at home, you're doing at home. And we provide opportunities for service to young people. So you'll see that in student ministries. You'll see that in Servants for Christ and children's ministries. We want them to know what it looks like to be a part of the church. And we do provide accountability to them as well. We're going to start where we began. And I'm going to read that Ryle quote for you again. And you can see it here. Put it all into view as an encouragement. Know that you cannot convert your child. I know well that they who are born again are born not of the will of God, but of man. But I also know that God says expressly, train up a child on the way he should go. And then he never laid a command on man, which he would not give man grace to perform. So God is holding you to the standard to raise your children, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But he's also going to give you the strength to do that. And I know, too, that our duty is not to stand still and dispute, but to go forward and obey. It is just in the going forward that God will meet us. The path of obedience is, is the way in which he gives blessing. And that blessing is to you. You will be blessed if you are faithful to God, whether or not God saves your child or not. God has given you your children to sanctify you. Yes, he's also given them to you that you would pass on truth to them. You would be an evangelist to them. But through that doing, being faithful to that doing, you are being blessed. We only have to do as the servants were commanded at the marriage feast in Canaan to fill the water pots with water, and we may safely leave it to the Lord to turn the water into wine and to turn your child's heart into one that loves and serves and obeys him. If you want to know more... Um, Basically, what I presented to you today is out of these resources here. So you can find Evangelizing Your Children. It's a pamphlet. There's a series of pamphlets called What the Elders Teach for Grace Church. You can find those online. Three books um, or two books that I um, can commend to you, um, What the Bible Says About Parenting, our pastor's book. So much of what I had to say is from him. And then specifically on this topic, you would be greatly blessed. And this is the book I recommend most above others, other than J.C. Ryle's Duty to Parents. But this one specifically will help set your mind straight and, again, reinforce the things we talked about today and concerning um, uh, evangelizing your children and, your, as the title says, your child's profession of faith. <clears throat> That's in the bookstore. Um, Joey, are you in here? Mejia? I think Joey said that he was going to um, make sure that that's available um, today. But if not, it's in, the, it's in the bookstore. And then as well as we have our Parenting for Life class that you can sign up at any time as well. It'll go through this and much more. Let me close us in prayer. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your word that we aren't stranded out on an island alone raising our children, that you give abundant 
evidence of yourself and abundant evidence of what you require of us as parents. I just would bathe the efforts of all the parents in this room and grandparents, prayers of wisdom, prayers of genuine concern, prayers of faithfulness to them as they go about efforting on that task for to raise their children and nurture and admonition of the Lord. I pray for all the child souls that are represented by the parents in here, Father, that you would save them, that they would be urged to come to salvation, that you would prepare their heart, that you would change their heart, regenerate it, and make it one that is loving towards you, that places their full allegiance towards you. We do this, Father, in the going out and evangelizing and parenting, as well as praying for the salvation of their souls, Father, all for your glory. You have a plan of salvation. It's your history, Father. We would pray that you be glorified in everything you say and do in the lives of these parents and their children, Father, and that we would give praise for you in the results. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.